In October 1551, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were executed. They were burned at the stake for heresy because they were Protestants in a time when England was going through its kind of flip-flop on whether they're going to be Catholic or Protestant. Uh, when Henry VIII was king, he took England out of the Catholic Church into the Protestant Church, and his oldest daughter, Mary, inherited the throne, and she sort of turned back the clock and took them back to Catholicism. Probably know uh, Mary better by her nickname, right? That was Bloody Mary. And she got the nickname Bloody Mary because... Uh, it, it was just a bad time in England to be a dissenter. Whatever the official church was, if you weren't that, you were at risk uh, of persecution, ultimately death. And so Latimer and Ridley tried to hold on to the Protestant faith at a time when Mary was trying to take them back to Catholicism, and they died for that. They were executed in Oxford, uh, burned at the stake, a very horrible death. Uh, it's, it's, uh, being executed seems like a horrible thing anyway, but this one seems particularly awful. I've seen it depicted in film a couple times, and it just seems you know, just, just wretched. On the way to the stake, where they knew what was coming, Latimer said this to Ridley. Be of good cheer, Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace as I trust shall never be put out. And that actually happened. Um, when Mary died without heir, her younger sister Elizabeth took the throne, and England has never gone back to being under the, under the control of the Catholic Church. And so that, that somewhat happened. When he said play the man, though, he wasn't, that wasn't an original phrase with him. He was quoting a story from his history. That's 500 years ago, but uh, uh, 1,500 years or 1,400 years before that, Polycarp was also burned at the stake for heresy. Now, um, I don't know if you remember that name. Polycarp was a student of John. He was a disciple of John who was a disciple of Jesus. So he's like a grand disciple of Jesus. Uh, John, the same guy who wrote the gospel and the letters and the book of Revelation, um, had you know, some guys that followed him around and learned from him. And, and eventually Polycarp was a pastor, kind of an outspoken one in a time when it was dangerous to be outspoken for Christianity. And the Romans executed him. For, for his Christian faith. According to witnesses at the execution, when Polycarp was uh, on the way to, to the stake where he was going to be executed, a voice from heaven said these words, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. So what's that mean? That's what we're going to focus on today. What's that mean to play the man? What's that mean to be a man biblically, uh, to be the kind of man that God's called us to be? I believe every man's called to provide, to protect, to teach, and to connect, both with his family and outside of his family. I want to give credit where it's due. Maybe you recall as we were finishing the series on parables, I sort of invited requests or suggestions about where we would go next. My mom gave me this book, and she uh, wrote a note on it and recommended a message on Father's Day or a series on Father's Day. I decided to just do one message on it. By the way, words for a lifetime. Listen to your mom. Uh, those are it's inescapable when you're a kid, but when you're an adult and you feel like you have a choice, it's still good advice. Uh, listen to your mom. But uh, anyway, uh, this book's called Four Pillars of a Man's Heart by Stu Weber, and it's heavily based on a secular book by Moore and Jaleer called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Um, and the point is that both the secular writers and this guy believe that there are really four aspects to a man's character um, and, and Weber believes it's a God-ordained, God-driven thing, and that if we neglect one, if we live a life that's out of balance, we're not, we don't have an opportunity to be completely the man that God's called us to be. Um, I, some of the language in this one, uh, I, I read this. Um, 
I wouldn't totally endorse, but overall, the thrust of the book I totally agree with, and it's a biblically, uh, it's, it's based on biblical principles. Weber believes, and I agree, that we're all called to be servant leaders, tender warriors, wise mentors, and faithful friends. And I'm going to go over what each of those four means and what that entails and how we, how we know if we're doing it and how we know if we're not. And sometimes it might be hard to do all four things at the same time, and you're all really not able to do all four things at the same time. We want to apply the standards of Scripture always, and then I think we need to count on the Holy Spirit's guidance to know which role to play at which time. Uh, there have been times where I think, I've, I confess I've learned this the hard way, where like Gina might be discussing with me something that went on at work. I can remember when she used to teach four-year-olds. There was oftentimes an early season of violence in the classroom. And uh, uh, before the, you know, sometimes ultimately the choker would have to go. Um, and uh, it's a, you know, it was kind of a sad, troubling time uh, for her. And it kind of repeated a, year, a couple years in a row. And uh, I think there were times where I tried to be the wise mentor to her, where really she just needed a faithful friend to just shut up and listen to her, to her, to her event about what her day was like. Um, I can remember when my daughter was in high school and you know, potential boyfriends would come around. I'd want to play the warrior. Um, and I think maybe that wasn't the role uh, that was most suitable for the time. So we need to learn to be balanced and ask the Holy Spirit to show us what, you know, what, what you require of me in this situation. And also, you notice that each one of those nouns leader, warrior, mentor, friend, has an adjective. And those are all important, because if we don't play each one of those roles in balance, we swing too far one way or the other way, then we're at risk, and our families, or our, whoever follows us in a leadership role is at risk. If you're a leader, and you're not also a servant, then that guy, we call that a tyrant. Um, that service is an, a key ingredient of appropriate biblical leadership. But on the other side, if you won't lead at all, that's an abdicator. And every institution, from the family to the church to whatever company you work for, is at risk if the, if the leaders won't lead. Uh, there's a responsibility to, to assume the leadership role that's placed upon you, and you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, it's not, that's not humility, that's abdication. A warrior who is not tender is just a brute. <clears throat> um, and... On the other side, a warrior who won't step up when the situation calls for it, that guy's a coward. And in our society, that's still one of the worst things you can call a man. A mentor who lacks wisdom is just a know-it-all. And I think you know how irritating it is to be around that guy. Uh, on the other hand, a mentor who doesn't know stuff, or who, uh, a, a man who doesn't know stuff, you know, that's, that's not advantageous either. The dunce dad, a very common sitcom character. And quite funny. I mean, Homer Simpson is, is entertaining, and the, according to Jim, dad, and the, uh, I guess he's not a dad, the King of Queens guy, he's an idiot and just makes me laugh, right? Um, but that's funny on TV. Not so funny if you're married to him, and not funny at all if that's your dad. You don't want a dunce for a dad. You, you want a, a, a wise man, a, a mentor. And a friend who's not faithful is really just an acquaintance, or even worse, a betrayer. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you're not willing to risk, run the risk of friendship, they're, 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 being a loner has its own um, consequences. On his deathbed, David gave advice to his son Solomon. Here's what he said. Be strong. Show yourself a man. 
and observe what the Lord your God requires. So we're going to look at these four things, servant leader, tender warrior, wise mentor, a faithful friend, and see what the Bible says about how we fill those roles. Servant leader, in Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called his disciples together and said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Gandhi said it this way, power is of two kinds. One is obtained by fear of punishment and the other by the art of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent. Here's how Paul said it in Ephesians, as a prisoner for the Lord, remember he was literally a prisoner of, of the Romans. Um, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, that word that uh, <clears throat> is translated humble in the NIV, in the King James, I believe, is translated as meek. And if you've been around long, you've heard me talk about meekness. This is one of my themes that I come back to over and over again here. Um, I think maybe because it rhymes with weak, meek is oftentimes misinterpreted as wimpy. But it's absolutely not. It's the opposite. Uh, Jesus was meek. I want to be meek. But I understand what it means to be meek. Uh, for me, this is, this, I'm going to give you Phil Keller's definition, but, but my definition is this. Meek is being strong enough that I don't have to control my circumstances in order to be okay. If I know who I am in God, I don't have to get my way. I don't have to manipulate you to do what I want you to do. I don't have to control you. Um, if I know what God's done for me and who I am in God then I can fill my role and trust God to, to work out the other stuff. And to me, that's strength, not weakness. I just got back from Kentucky where they're all about horse racing. And horse breeders have a saying that the meekest horse wins the race. That was surprising to me when I read that. The meekest horse wins the race. Wouldn't you think it was the strongest or the fastest? But here's the deal. They're all strong and they're all fast. What that means is that the champion is the horse who's well-bred and muscular like they all are, but who has most clearly responded to his training. It's strength under control. I'm going to read a Philip Keller's definition of meekness. He says, meek men are not weak men. They refuse to shove, push, and throw their weight around. They do not win their wars with brutal battles and fierce fights. They win their way into a hundred hearts and homes with the passport of a lowly, loving spirit. Their unique genius is their gentleness. This quality of life does not come from a position of feeble impotence, but rather from a tremendous inner strength and serenity. Only the strong, stable spirit can afford to be gentle. This quality is much more than a thin veneer of proper propriety or superficial politeness. Rather, it is the epitome of a laid-down life, poured out, laid out, lived on behalf of others. That's what I mean when I talk about meekness. Now, sometimes when I talk about leadership, uh, to a group of men, they're thinking, eh, I don't want to be that. You know, when I talk about husbands, you know, being the leadership, filling the leadership role in their families, they'll think, I'm just not, I'm not for that. I'm not equipped for that. I'm not, not born to be a leader. And, and then sometimes, um, I, I think to the, the, uh, to the detriment of the family and the marriage, uh, the wife will step up and say, no problem, I'll take it. Uh, and the 
it's not based on it's not based on worth and it's not based on value and it's not even based on ability it's just based on a, a positional thing that God has done you've heard me talk about this in the marriage series last last year but sometimes you'll find if you're in a leadership role and if essentially every man who's got a family is going to be in one um, doubts will come. Sometimes those will come to you from the questions and barbs and attacks of other people. Sometimes those will come to you from your own thoughts. Late at night, lying in bed, and you second guess yourself. Uh, I'm going to read you some questions. Maybe you recognize these questions. Maybe you've heard people attack you with these or question you with these, or maybe you've asked them of yourself. What makes you think you're better than anybody else? Have you ever asked that one or heard that one? Uh, that's based on a misconception that the leader is better. Being a leader doesn't mean you're better. It doesn't mean you're more valuable. It means you're more responsible. It means that you're more accountable for what goes on. That's easy to understand for husbands. You know, biblically based, there's no escape in a leadership role. No one, no one who knows us, I think, would deny that I'm the leader in my home. And yet it would be absurd for me to claim that I'm a better person. People who've known us for the, uh, the 26 years of our marriage would just toss back their heads and laugh at the idea that, uh, that, that I'm the better person of the two. In fact, I'm a better man because of Gina's influence on me. Um, the, but yet, when I filled the leadership role that God placed on me, our family has, has been blessed. And when I've neglected and abdicated that role, our family has suffered. And, and so, you know, for husbands... It, it, that one should be easy to dispel. A lot of these questions that you ask yourself are based on misconceptions or faulty presuppositions. Who do you think you are? Ouch, I've heard that one. <laughs> that, one, that, one that one stung, I remember. And here's the deal. You didn't earn your leadership role. You didn't claim your leadership role. You were appointed. It's not, it's not what gives you the right. It's who gives you the right. And if God placed you in a position, then... You, the, the only question to ask is not how did you get here, it's are you, going, are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to answer that call? Are you willing to fulfill it to the best of your ability? Do you really think you can lead better than someone else? Now, that's a, that's a tough one because oftentimes you know, we can think of a bunch of people who could do better, who could do the role better. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. I read a book a couple years ago by Doris Kearns Goodwin called Team of Rivals. I love the book, and I'd highly recommend it. You learn about history from reading the book, but I feel like I learned a lot about leadership. Lincoln was a surprise nominee at the 1860 Republican Convention. In fact, he was fourth place um, going into the convention in the summer of 1860. And because the convention was deadlocked and they had to do a bunch of ballots, he eventually became sort of the compromise candidate, and the Republicans nominated him. And, of course, when he was elected, that's when the Civil War started. Well, the three guys who were ahead of him, Seward, Chase, and Bates, or Blair, Bates, um, he has asked all three of them to be on his cabinet, which shows a little bit about his leadership style already, right? These guys were rivals of his who really thought they would have been better suited, each of them, in their public writings and in their speeches. It was plain that they thought the country, the Republicans nominated the wrong guy and the country would have been better off if, if one of them had been elected rather than Lincoln, but he drew them close to him rather than pushing them away. And he used their gifts to help preserve the country during the, during the Civil War. William Seward, who was, Lincoln asked him to be Secretary of State 
early on in the administration, he did just the most arrogant thing. He wrote a letter to Lincoln, and he said, everybody knows that you're over your head. And I'm paraphrasing here. But everybody knows you're over your head, and everybody knows that, you know, with my experience, you know, I would be better suited to actually run the country than you. So here's what I'll do for you. Uh, we'll, we can let you just be like the figurehead, like they do over in England, and I'll actually be kind of the prime minister and sort of run the country. And you can sign things and, you know, sh show up at parades and such. And, uh, and I think about that. How would you respond if you got a letter like that? For me, you know, all the the bad warrior stuff comes up and I, I'm ready for the smackdown, putting the guy in his place, right? Um, and to me, this is a measure of Lincoln's greatness. He wrote back to him, and whenever I think about Lincoln's response, I always picture Andy Griffith. He wrote back and just said, you know, that was generous of you, and I really appreciate your offer, but you know, since, since I did get elected, I feel like I ought to give it my best shot, and uh, I'm sure I'll do better because you're helping uh, running the State Department. And I think what a gracious, forgiving reply. And, and a couple years later, I don't know if you know the end of the story, Seward was one of his biggest fans. You know, he won Seward over with his character and with his ability and with his leadership. And yet, he, and, and Seward was a very able and capable Secretary of State, served the country, you know, even after Lincoln died. And so, to me, it's a measure of Lincoln's ability that he was able to, to, to overcome his own he couldn't have felt good about being insulted like that, but he was able to set that aside and do what was do his duty. <clears throat> what if you think you're not a natural born leader? Well, you know, if you think you are a natural born leader, chances are you're an arrogant jerk, and we don't want to be around you anyway, right? Little Napoleons, nobody wants that. Being an effective leader is really a learned skill. And the Bible has a plain promise that God will not call you to anything without equipping you to answer that call. And so if you think you got it made, we probably don't want to follow you anyway. But if you're concerned about your ability and you're desperate for God's help to fulfill the role he's called you to, well, then maybe we can trust you and we'll, we'll, we'll follow along. What if I try to lead and nobody follows? Now, that's a, that's a fearful thought. Uh, I confess I've had that one before. Um, that fear is gripping, and I think we've all, anyone who's been in any kind of leadership role has felt that. And I think Paul felt it too, and here's his answer. It's in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's answer, and that's all we can do. You know, press on, keep your eyes on the prize, trust that God's going to equip you for the tough times, and, and do the best you can. You know, with, the, with God's help, if he's called you to a role, you can trust him to equip you for it. Servant leaders provide for the needs of their families, the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. They also look after the needs of any institution, any organization they lead. Servant leaders promote justice, offer mercy, give honor, and they never, ever abandon their team. When you're promoting justice, it's easier if you start with yourself. If you apply stricter integrity standards on yourself than those you try to apply them to. Um, nobody wants to follow the guy who cuts corners in his own life and then tries to uphold a real tight standard in, in everybody else's life. A servant leader offers mercy. 
Here's a story about that. When you fly into New York, you got three choices. You can fly into Newark or you can fly into JFK Airport or what other airport is there? LaGuardia. Who's that? Fiorello LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City in, uh, during the Depression. And uh, he is beloved among New Yorkers. And uh, I'll tell you part of the reason. Uh, although being a mayor of New York City is kind of a busy job, and it was back then too, from time to time he would connect with the people by going down to the night court and serving as the magistrate. He would be the judge at the night court. And at one point, they brought in a man who was <clears throat> accused of the crime of stealing. He'd stolen food cause, to feed his family because he was hungry, kind of like a Jean Valjean sort of thing. Um, but LaGuardia, it, you know, he can't condone. He's the judge. He's the mayor. He can't condone stealing. And so he upholds justice. He, senses, he finds the guy guilty, gives him a sentence, a fine of $10. And then he also offers mercy at the same time. He gets down off the judge's bench, comes down to the desk, and pays the guy's fine out of his own pocket. So he's upholding justice and offering mercy at the same time. That's why they love him so much and name an airport after him. A servant leader gives honor. How do you speak about your wife? How do you speak about your kids? How do you speak about anybody who's on your team, especially a team where you're the leader? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but say only what is a blessing and useful for building others up. Imagine what our families would be like if the dads upheld this standard. If we said to our wives and to our kids only what is a blessing and useful for building others up. A servant leader never, ever abandons his team. Now, for husbands and fathers, the, you know, the first team you need to not abandon is the, your family. Um, I, you know, I've been a high school teacher for 20 years now. I've seen the devastation that comes to families when dad's not around. That devastation continues for generations. It's not a, a one-time thing. And the myth that we can be good parents without being married to each other, yeah, that's... I don't want to heap condemnation on people who have failed at this, but it's just not true. Um, kids pay the price when dad's not around. And so whatever, whatever price you have to pay, uh, if you, if you miss out on an opportunity to find yourself or to enjoy true happiness or to fulfill your dreams, dads, just deal with it. Uh, never, ever abandon your team. Okay, that's the first one. I'll go faster through the next three. We're, we're called to be servant leaders. We're called to be tender warriors, which seems kind of like a, a contradiction, right? But you know, David was one of the best warriors in the Bible and a, a poet who wrote the, the Old Testament songbook, right? Uh, you find lots of warriors in the Bible. Abraham took 318 men from his household, pursued four kings and four armies. He divided his force, attacked at night, routed the enemy, and brought back all the hostages they'd taken. Uh, he was an effective warrior. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, risked his life to say, let my people go and let his people out. Joshua took untested, untrained troops and attacked walled cities populated by giants and won. Caleb was 85 years old, ready for retirement. Think, you'd think he would have earned a break. He asked for permission to attack the enemies of God in the hill country. He got that permission, and he took his men into battle and won. David, of course, we spent a lot of time on David a year or so ago. He killed a lion, killed a bear, killed Goliath, killed a bunch of Philistines, and yet he was tender enough to write poetry, worshiping God. Nehemiah, after the exile, he was called by God to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but it was dangerous work because they had enemies that opposed the work. So what was his answer? Sword in one hand, a trowel in the other. We'll work when we can, and we'll fight when we have to. And then, uh, obviously, Jesus is the best example of a guy who lays down his life for his men. 
But Stephen followed that example right away. He stood up to the ruling council of Israel. He condemned them based upon their own history, which was very precious to them. And he pointed to the Christ they had killed, even as they were killing him. Uh, these guys were not uh, cowardly men who lacked bravery. What does a warrior do? A warrior shields, a warrior defends, a warrior guards, a warrior protects. Because war is so obscene, we oftentimes make the mistake of thinking a warrior is bad too. But uh, when I was in Kentucky, Gina told me the story about the woman who was jogging over in Orlando and, uh, and she was killed. Uh, I don't know all the details, but I wish there was a warrior there. I wish I'd been there and, and been warrior enough to get in the middle of that. Uh, that's a, well, let me read uh, what C.S. Lewis said about it. Lewis said, we've discovered that the scheme of outlawing war has made war more like an outlaw without making it less frequent and that to banish the night does not alleviate the suffering of the peasant. Now, there's a God-given thing that uh, I mean, every man in the room hears that story about the lady in Orlando, and we think, yeah, some, we needed a warrior there. But it's not all about fighting. 2 Corinthians 10 says it this way, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What are those weapons? I'll tell you one. I could do a whole message on this, but I won't. One is forgiveness. Men, do you know how to ask forgiveness? That's a hard thing to do. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Can you say those words when you, when you need to? Do you know how to extend forgiveness? Uh, those are the weapons that the tender warrior though, uses uh, biblically. Um, now I'm going to read you a letter uh, from a tender warrior. Um, does anybody know the name Sullivan Ballou? It's, I would have pronounced it Bellow, but the History Channel guys say Ballou, so you know, who might argue with them? Um, um, Sullivan Ballou was a major in the Union Army um, in 1861. He died at the First Battle of Manassas. And a week before the battle, sometimes it's called Battle of Bull Run, that, that, one of the first major battles of the war. Um, a week before the battle, he wrote a letter to his wife. Uh, does that ring a bell with anybody? Anybody heard it before? Well, good. Um, I've read it several times, and uh, I cry every time I read it. So you think, I mean, it was just an hour ago last time I read it, so you think maybe I, I might be able to hold it together this time, but uh, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> we'll see. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution, and I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I have enjoyed with you comes crawling over me, and I feel most deeply grateful to God and to you that I have enjoyed them for so long. But how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived in love together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. 
If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you. Know that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I've caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I've sometimes been. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth to flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and in the darkest night, always, always. And when the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air on your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Uh, to me, that's the picture of the tender warrior. I, have any of you ever seen the Ken Burns series on the uh, uh, Civil War? It's an excellent series. And the first episode has this letter. And that's the first time I heard it about 12, 14 years ago. And I can remember I was watching it. Gina was in the kitchen doing something. And after, after the narrator read the letter, she comes in from the kitchen and she's crying and I'm crying. And, uh, and, the, the, and what's funny to me is every time since then, it moves me in the same way. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm in the Louisville airport Thursday morning reading this book and tears just streaming down my face. I think, what a dork. I wonder if people, you know, what people walking by think of me. But uh, I just said it so well. You know, I'm not going into battle. And we've already seen our kids raised to adulthood. But, Gene, if you ever find yourself without me, you know, what he said. That's, 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 I can't say it any better than that. The tender warrior knows a few things. He's under authority. He remains on call. He sacrifices willingly. He must sometimes say and do the hard thing. And he demonstrates a heart of mercy. Uh, John Wayne's kind of an older reference for a lot of this crowd, but uh, I know we've got people in here who are old enough to remember John Wayne's career as an actor. And what you, what you may not remember about him is he really wasn't that good at it. Uh, he was a hardworking but only moderately gifted actor, and his roles were kind of all the same, right? Pretty predictable, pretty monochromatic. How did he become such an icon? Well, here's the answer. He actually stood for something amid the mush of timidity and moral indifference. And, and, and that's, that's news we can use. We don't have to be superstar geniuses. We need to stand for something. If you're in the military, you know the concept of general orders as compared to special orders. General orders are orders that apply to everybody, and special orders are for a particular situation, right? So for a spiritual, biblical, tender warrior, our general orders are going to be found where? They're going to be found in the Bible. And there are a few that apply to all of us throughout all times in history. One, we should spend regular time with God. It's, it's all over scripture. It's what Jesus did. It's what we should do. Love your wives at all costs. And I mean at all costs. You know, whatever price you have to pay to love your wife, it's worth it. Show your children how to have a relationship with God. Don't bother telling them if you can't show them. You got to show this. They're not, they, they will half-heartedly listen to what you say, but they'll, they'll imitate what you do. Serve your church, and by church, I don't mean the institution, I mean the people in the congregation. Serve your community. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, the third thing we're called to be men is a, a wise mentor. Yeah, I learned this this week. I didn't know this. Mentor is a man's name, a, a, a character in fiction. I just thought it was a, you know, a noun that meant like tutor. But uh, I, I'm sure you've heard of the, uh, the Odyssey uh, or 
it's the story where Odysseus is coming home from the Trojan War, and it takes him 10 years to get home, and he has a bunch of adventures and meets the Cyclops and that kind of stuff on the way. Well, he had a son named Telemachus, and who trained and taught Telemachus while Odysseus was taking the long way home? The guy's name was Mentor. And uh, that's something I just learned this week. So it was actually a, a fictional character from the Odyssey. And what's a mentor do? A mentor is a father figure who affects and influences another. Um, I told this story in the first service uh, about Andrew, and he wasn't here for that, but now he's here, so I hope it's okay. Um, when uh, I, I remember reflecting once, you know, as a, as a teacher, I've seen the pain that comes when dad's not on the job. And, and my kids, by the time they got to high school, they had a dad who was too much on the job, I think, for their taste in some cases. But uh, um, I, I remember at one point being just extremely grateful for the fact that Andrew had, beyond his dad, up to a dozen men I could name who had invested into his life, uh, Christian men who loved him and cared for him and who, who, who invested their lives into his so that, uh, you know, so that he, he'd just be a better man. Uh, this story comes from when Andrew was in the ninth grade. Um, he, he said to his mom and me at one point that he felt kind of like a freak in his own class. Uh, we just thought he was more mature, but, you know, when you're a ninth grader, you want to fit in, and he felt like he didn't fit in that well. And at one point he said, the kid next to me likes to watch Dragon Ball Z cartoons and trade the cards, and I don't really get that, and I feel like my best friend is an engineer in his 30s. And he was talking about Walter. Um, and so that's why he felt like a freak. And I just want to say again, you know, I, say it, I say it over and over again, you know, Walter, you poured your life into my sons, and he's a better man for it. And, uh, and so we, we dads are called to be dads to our own sons, but men, whether you've got kids of your own or not, or, or you, you have an influence well beyond your own offspring, and, and, and you have opportunities to invest your lives in the lives of young people. You know, I get to teach every Sunday morning for about 30 minutes, and that's a nice assignment. I like doing that. I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this. But when do I mentor? Well, always. There's no escape from that role. I'm, I'm, I'm always on that job somehow, some way. Uh, there's a Jewish proverb that says, a child tells in the streets what his father says at home. And that's so true. In fact, our best opportunities to mentor the people that are close to us don't come when we get out our notes and, and, and speak from a prepared text. They come in the tough times when we get to demonstrate our reactions. What, what are you like when you get squeezed? What are you like when the pressure's on? That's what your kids are watching and learning from. It's not the, well, let me teach you a lesson. Let me read you a devotion about you know, holding up under tough times. It's when you get those tough times that your kids learn how to do that. I'm going to read a passage from 2 Timothy. Most of you are familiar with the end of this passage about the Bible being profitable. But sometimes it's, we overlook the first part. In 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 15, it says this, Evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, I mean, you're called to mentor, but it's not just, you know, don't just make it up as you go along. We have a guide uh, that we should teach them from. And uh, I know this is a, a message all about men, but there's something for the ladies here. I don't know if you noticed it. But Paul's writing to Timothy and says, you know those from who you learned it. Who, from whom did Timothy learn? Mom and his grandma. 
uh, lowest in units, right? Uh, and so that's who, who Paul was referring to there. But then Paul goes on to say the passage you're more familiar with, the Bible being useful, right? It's useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we do have an opportunity to teach, but we teach more with our lives than with our words. Um, again, I know we got kind of a young crowd, but I know some of you are old enough to remember uh, uh, Charles Barkley and Carl Malone. You guys remember them? Uh, they're basketball players, professional basketball players. Barkley, uh, I can still remember seeing him on TV because they played this interview over and over again on, on SportsCenter where he looked at the camera kind of with a sassy look because uh, Barkley was known for being kind of a wild character off the court. And at one point they asked him about that and he said, I am no role model. I'm not a role model. Well, Carl Malone, uh, he played for the Utah Jazz. He took him to task for that. Here's what he said. I disagree with what Charles says. Charles, you can deny being a role model all you want, but I don't think it's your decision to make. We don't choose to be role models. We're chosen. Our only choice is whether to be a good model or a bad one. And so dads, you know, I'd say that to you too. You don't have a choice about whether you're going to be a model for your kids. The choice is what kind of model you're going to be. The last thing is faithful friend. G.K. Chesterton said there are only two things that can satisfy a soul, a person and a story, and even the story has to be about a person. God made us to be in communities. You ever thought about it? I mean, in nature, it doesn't have to be this way that it takes two to make a third and then they're to live together in, in communities. There, there are organisms that don't operate that way. But God made humans to live in communities. The, the most obvious original one of those is families, but I believe churches are examples of that. And, 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 and we are more complete as part of a community rather than as, as lone rangers. Uh, the passage we heard this morning uh, just before the service comes from Hebrews, and we know how to be faithful friends to others because of the example Jesus has set. Thir Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If you understand the friendship that you have in God, it will equip and empower you to be a better friend to the people that you come in contact with. Faithful friends know some things about their relationship with God that strengthens them, that strengthen them in their relationship with others. You know this, God wants a relationship with you. And then God's made some promises that you can rely upon. First of all, you're going to have trouble. You know, we live in this world. Jesus said there will be trouble. He also said, I will never leave you. And following Jesus through life will be worth it. Whatever the price here on earth, it'll be worth it. Now, if we know those things and understand those, it will empower us. It will strengthen us in our relationships with other people. 2 Timothy 2.13 says it this way. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot dis disown himself. Let's pray. God, help us with this. Uh, Lord, on behalf of the men of this church, uh, the husbands and the potential husbands and the pre-dads, uh, Lord, I just say before you that we want to, to honor you with our lives. We want to be the servant leaders that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to be tender warriors and wise mentors and faithful friends. Lord, I thank you for the examples that we've had in our own families. Lord, help us to forgive and help us to be forgiving. Help us to ask it when we need to. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd show us where. 
Uh, Lord, if you're calling anybody to respond to this message today, I ask that you would communicate that with your gentle whisper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.